Something, something bad is had is had. Sugar. Oh, you got a little weird there. Trying to decide, like, is it when I touch anything? I can definitely hear it now, so I presume I'm recording it. I think we're good. I'm going to try and not touch things, and it'll be great. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vickery. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, hey Chris, how's your week going? Hi Steph, it's uh, going well, yeah. All the days kind of look the same, but I'm kind of enjoying it. I've been exercising more and eating a little bit better and trying to, you know, do some things. So yeah, it's going well. How about you? Uh, things are going good. How are you managing to exercise more? Is that just because you have some more time at home or what's changed? Uh, yeah, previously I had somewhere between two and three hours of daily commute, which is a lot. And now both by virtue of the new adventure that I'm on in life. And then the fact that people aren't really allowed to leave their houses, I don't have that commute. So that's a little bit of extra time. And then I have a while back, a couple of years ago, I set up a gym in my basement so have some options down there. And I've been trying uh, basically at lunch each day, I'll pause work, go down to the basement, work out a little bit, and then come back to work. And so that's been a nice structure. And it means that I'm getting it in during the day. But I always found it a little bit difficult personally to start the day with working out. So I've, I wake up, kind of wake myself up, have a morning routine, then start working. And then I break at the middle of the day. And that's worked out quite well for me. So I'm enjoying that. Nice. Yeah, I've been having similar feelings where I am. I've actually been writing out my schedule each day to myself. I sort of like the preparation for the day and then allotting like what I'm doing for each like 30 or 60 minutes. And it's making me very aware that when I go back to commuting that I'm going to lose like this hour in the morning and this hour in the evening when normally that would have been filled with some other activity. So I'm not looking forward to that bit. I don't know if I've, I've said this here, but I'm really digging remote life. It's It's working out for me. I don't know that you've said that on here, but um, yeah, it's interesting. I'm of two minds personally. There are some aspects that I absolutely love about it. I'm personally somewhat concerned. So for right now, my wife is also working from home. And so it's been very nice having another person in the house. I think I would do poorly. The first week that I tried this all out, it was just me at home. That was a little much, uh, especially for someone who had been used to being in an office and having people to talk to face to face. So maybe I could acclimate to it, but longer term, that concerns me. But the, the version of it right now is actually perfect. I love having another human being that I can just like loosely interact with throughout the day, but otherwise avoid commute and all. Like there's some really wonderful aspects that fall out of it. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm fortunate. I also have a cohabitating human. That's a that's a weird way to say that, but here we are. <laughs> I, I have a friend. Well, we're technologists. <laughs> we're not really about the people stuff, so... <laughs> A cohabitating human person. <laughs> and then if I'm lucky, maybe a dog. I'm, I'm still working on that one. We'll see if that happens in the near future. <laughs> My understanding is like all of the animal shelters are basically all the dogs have been claimed and are now hopefully in happy homes. Oh, really? Because everybody's in the same. They're like, this is the perfect time to get a puppy and train it because I'm going to be home all the time. And so like you might be able to find one, but... Uh, it's a very good time for animal rescue places that are trying to place animals in, in nice homes. Oh, that that makes me so happy. I hadn't heard that. I thought about that, wondering if people were still adopting or how they were handling the situation. But if it, there's actually been a spike in the number of animals that are getting adopted because of this, that's a, that's a really nice uh, positive point to everything that's going on. I think that's true. But it's one of those like anecdotal things that now when I look in the back of my head, I'm like, hey, Brain, why do you think you know that? Brain's like, I don't know. I feel like I heard it somewhere. 
I'm going to tell you it like it's true, though. And I'm like, brain, come on. We got to... <laughs> got to do better at these sort of things you and your brain have your own podcast <laughs> or you're just we do we have a slack channel uh we try and keep it honest lots of emoji reactions you know <laughs> lots of back and forth at a minimum i will tell you that much but anyway speaking of back and forth i think we want to switch this episode structure up just a tiny bit and we actually want to lead with a listener question because um i think we've mentioned it in the past few episodes we would love to get a few more of those in um, we actually do have a few that are in the backlog so today we're going to start the episode with one of them how's that sound yeah that sounds perfect so the question that we have today it comes from our very own tom obarski and it's related to vim efficiency so tom wrote in 200 percent listener second time caller and a soon to be released episode chris mentioned how much time he has put into configuration customization vim script etc for making vim more extensible and efficient setting aside that you like to do all of this work in vim if you had to estimate the time spent on customization versus the time spent from more efficient editing which way would that scale be tipping this is a good question, I think. Just to highlight it, when Tom in this uh, request says, in a soon-to-be-released episode, Chris mentions, this was back in November of 2019 that we captured this note from Tom. So this is unstuck in time, and maybe we can figure out the episode that he's actually referencing. But I think in it, I just loosely commented that I've spent a lot of time tweaking my personal configuration, particularly Vim, but also Tmux, ZShell, all of those sort of command line utilities. And uh, Tom actually phrases the question, I think, really well when he said, setting aside that you like to do all of this work on BIM. So whenever I answer this question, I'll probably loop back and answer it that way anyway, because there's a hobby portion of this. Like, this is just a fun thing that I like to do. But if I think about it in, like, pure efficiency, I don't think it makes sense in terms of, like, clock hours. I have written thousands of lines of Vim script, which I don't recommend to any human. It is not a good programming language. There are ways to do other things in Vim, but it's sort of the much like JavaScript for making dynamic stuff in the browser. You're kind of that's the language that you have to use. Vim script is that for Vim mostly. And it has definitely not been like in terms of raw hours put into the work versus raw hours saved. I just don't think it makes sense. I don't think that math works out. But the actual thing, the reason that I do it. And sort of the general thing that I really like about Vim is I don't want to have to think about how to make an edit. I want to be able to think about the change that I want to make to my system. And then I want the thing that I do to tell the computer how to like get that into the code to be as simple as possible, to be as direct. And people think of it as like very fast. Vim is very fast and efficient and things like that are the words that they use. But I think of it more as direct. I don't think about how I interact with Vim. It just kind of happens. My hands do the right thing. And it's the minimum number of keystrokes, but that's also put differently, the most direct way to enter it. And so that's the thing that I'm always optimizing for is once I've put in the the hard work of thinking about the change that I want to make, how directly can I map that into the editor that I'm working with? And so that I found a ton of value in. I don't know that it actually makes me like produce more good code at the end of the week, but it's so much more pleasant for me. So... That's a that's a quick portion of the answer, but Steph, I'm interested in your thoughts and like how much time you've thrown into this and whether you think there's been a good trade-off for you personally. Well, let's see. Since I have you and you've done a lot of that work for me, it's been a great value <laughs> trade for me. But I, I really do like the description that you just gave. I think that's one of the best ways of describing the value proposition and the value that I felt from Vim. It is very specific and I can have the most direct way of changing. There's also something about the muscle memory that comes from Vim that while I, while I do have to ramp up with it, once I'm there, it feels very easy to navigate and move around 
And so I haven't really spent that much time in configuring Vim. When I did switch to using a new laptop for a client, there was a little bit of a ramp up period where I had to make sure I had some of the customizations and the packages that I'm used to. So there was a little bit of that time spent, but it, it wasn't long. It was probably maybe an hour total that I spent working on that. So overall, I haven't really invested too much time into my Vim setup, and yet I still feel very efficient with it. That being said, I also, I'm really not opposed. Like if I, I think to really give this answer a fair shake, I'd have to try some of the other editors that are out there and see how efficient and how comfortable I feel and how productive I feel with those. But since I'm kind of in that state where I'm already very productive with the environment that I have, then I'm comfortable pursuing this. And I, I don't feel like for my tipping point that I have spent more time configuring them versus the productivity that I feel from it. So I feel like I'm at a break even point. Nice. It's a good spot to be at. Like I said, I'm, I'm far past that, but um, I think it does solidly for me fall into the hobby space and like a fun thing to do. If I were making a recommendation to other people, especially for folks working on web stuff, it would be just use VS Code. It's so fantastic at this point. They've done such an amazing job, but man, I can't give up Vim. And like the Vim mode in VS Code is just not the same. The only Vim mode that I've ever seen that really came close was Emacs, evil mode in Emacs. It's frankly better than Vim at being Vim because Emacs is so ridiculously extensible and it was built up from like first principles, but I can't be trusted with Emacs. Or that I think for me would be like a pure productivity black hole. So nope, it's going to be a no. And so Vim is my nice, like I have found my optimization point and I have thrown plenty of hours at it. Although I've recognized that that's really tapered off in recent years. I do a lot less Vim configuration and Vim plugin writing. Like I wrote some of the ones that I wanted and Vim isn't a thing that I keep tweaking. I can keep getting a little bit better at it. And some of the like language server stuff coming out of VS Code and TypeScript has been really nice to add into Vim. But the core editing workflows have sort of stabilized for me. And I gave a talk a while back, something probably like five years ago now, that was called Mastering the Vim Language. And I really like that I still feel basically the identical way about Vim then as I do now, where it's like, yeah, I like the fundamental ideas here, but I'm less interested in the like fancy bracket matching or color things or some of the other plugins that are new and novel that are coming out. I'm, I'm less interested in those. I really like the core editing model of Vim and that kind of works for me. Well, I know the reason I'm at a break-even point is because of people that are like you that have spent time having this as a hobby and that you've dedicated a lot of time to it. And then you also have shared that knowledge. So it's made it very easy for me to sort of bring on all the hard work that you've done to then have a really great setup of my own. So yeah, that's that's why I'm also at that break-even is because I also have not continued to alter my setup. Once I have a good basic setup, I'm good. And I just really lead alone. The area I am struggling with is sometimes with like linting and other configurations like that, so that it applies to one project and not other projects. That is something that I'm still like being challenged by and making sure that's only being applied to the projects that I want. So that one I may have to spend some time on. So it sounds like uh, for me, I'm break even for you. I think you spent a lot more time in Vim, but that's also something that you've enjoyed. So you're past the break even point. <laughs> I've invested in the system. Yeah. Hopefully, like you said, other people can benefit from it too. So yeah. So cool. Uh, thanks, Tom, for sending that question. And for anyone else that has questions, please continue to send them to us. We really love getting those questions and then responding to them here on the show. If you'd like to send us a question, you can reach out to us via Twitter or you can email us at host at bikeshed.fm. And now sort of back to like our regular programming or switching back to some of the stuff that you and I have been working on throughout the week. So I ran into an interesting thing that I didn't realize is an important part of forms. So I was working on a feature that shows a collection of checkboxes to a user, and then that user can select which of the options that they want to apply. 
And I noticed that when all the options were deselected and then it was coming through to the controller, I was getting an array with an empty string in the list. And that surprised me. I was like, oh, well, maybe I've done something wrong because I'm not sure why I'm getting this empty string. And so then I started looking into it further and I realized that there's a very important reason as to why that particular empty string is there. And this is really in thanks to a comment that is left in the Rails form options helper uh, that was left by Bogdan Gusev. And it was a very nice comment uh, that they had left in the Rails repository that states that the HTML specification states that when all the options in a multi-select are deselected, it's typical for the web browser to not send a response or to send any value to the server. However, that leads to a gotcha in terms of when we want to update a model. So let's say if you have like a list of values and you've stored one of those values on the model, but now a user comes along and deselects all of those options, if that doesn't get sent to the server, then that model is going to continue to persist with just that one option set. And it's never going to be updated to match that empty list that now represents the user's choice. So that empty string gets sent to make sure that we are getting a value and then we can update that particular record to ensure that the attributes are set to an empty list or to reflect that the user has intentionally deselected all of those options and that represents the state of the world. But that was something I just, I didn't know about forms, but it's thanks to a hidden field that gets placed right before the input or the multi-select and there's an empty string that comes through each time. Forms, they are just the trickiest things in the world and HTTP and all of them, uh, it's just ridiculous. I know I've run into this before. I know I've been surprised by it and I remember having to do some sort of workaround and I feel like it was a like mass assignment or I wanted to, I feel like I had to do something about that string. Because when you started saying this, my brain was just like, oh no, I don't remember why, but I know of this. This is a thing. I've I've encountered this thing, but I remember it being bad. And the way you're describing it, it's like, oh no, Rails just nicely handles this and works around the, let's say, rough edge of the HTTP spec. But did you have to do anything with this or did it just work and was good? Yeah, so I did have to do a little bit with it. And for this particular case, so this is how the Rails form helper uh, handles this. And specifically to the project that I'm on, we're using a project that's called Formtastic, but they're also doing the same thing. So that anytime there's a collection, they're ensuring that that hidden field with an empty string is there and getting sent back. And then in my case, since I'm taking these values and I'm saving them to an array column on that particular record, I don't want to save that empty string. It's not going to really hurt anything, although it could perhaps get weird with like if I were searching for some values in that array. Uh, But there's just no need to save that empty string to the database. So then I did add a before validation hook to the model that is removing all empty strings before saving that value to the record, which I waffled a bit over because it feels closer to like an HTTP concern where it's coming into the controller and perhaps that's where I should actually be filtering out the empty string but then it also felt nice to implement a more general guard against having empty strings get saved to this list, to the database. So I ended up going with that approach instead. But honestly, I think I could have argued it to myself either way. Is that how you recall working with this in the past? Or do you remember? I don't remember the specifics. And this may not be accurate at all. But like when you started to say this, my memory was, I remember this. It frustrated me to no end. It took a while to figure out what was happening. And then I had to do some weird hack sort of thing that felt like it should be either in the platform or in the framework, but definitely not in my application code. And yet I was writing it in my application code. I may be conflating an entirely unrelated thing, or I may have written my form wrong, or I may be misremembering entirely, but that's the version of it that I remember. 
So when you started to say this, I was like, ah, bad. I don't like, this is not, <laughs> not my friend. But maybe it's just good and fine. I don't know. Yeah, it, it was a little surprising to see and then to figure out if I need to address it or not. And in my case, I decided to because I, I just don't want to save any unnecessary non-valuable values inside of my database. Uh, so it seemed reasonable to take it out. Uh, one of the other interesting things that came up with this particular feature I was working on, so I'm introducing these options and um, to paint a little bit more of a, a picture here, it's for a particular, let's say a doctor's practice and they have different ways that you can book an appointment for that doctor. So you can either have a an office consultation, you can have a phone call or a video call consultation. And as we're in a world where we're going more remote, they're in a state where they just wanna offer the remote consultation so these new options will give them that ability to customize which appointment types a patient can book with them. So when I was thinking about adding those three options to a, in this case, we'll call the model of practice, I was debating as like, well, I could either add three Boolean columns to represent each one. So like in office phone call video, I could also introduce a new table that has something like appointment modes. And then for each appointment mode that the practice supports, they would have an associative record that goes with that, which also has a little trickiness because then that means like the lack of a record means that they don't offer it. So there's some some funkiness with that one. And then talking it over with Carl and Brian, two other thought botters that are on the project, they had the great idea to use a more like denormalized structure and instead to have an array that's on that practice record and then store each like in office phone call and video call as a string inside that table or inside that column. And it's worked out really well. I'm really glad I ran it by them for that idea because that's not something that I initially thought of. So that's using a native Postgres array and then Rails is wrapping over that? Yeah, it's using the native Postgres array. The only, the main downside I, I ran into that is I really wanted to add some sort of like database security to make sure that I couldn't store a value that I don't want inside of that list. And that got a little tricky. I'm pretty sure it can be done strictly with just writing SQL inside of that migration. That's something that I, I haven't tested just yet. But that was the the one oddity I ran into because I can have the validations at the model and that's probably fine because this is an interface that one's only going to be interacted with by admins and then two through like this form. So it, it feels unlikely that we'll get a value that we don't want to store in the database. But that's not necessarily a reason that I don't also want to provide strict rules around the data that can be stored. So that's sort of next on my list is to look into how to add that safety because that wasn't obvious at first how to do it. But Carl provided a suggestion that I think will work. I just need to test it out, which is using the more SQL approach versus relying on like the active record migration to provide a, a handy way to sort of like create, I think it would be creating like a Postgres enum, but then I have to create a Postgres enum type and then be able to associate that type with the array. So then that way it restricts the values to whatever's in that enum type, but we'll see. I'm very interested to hear where you get to with that because that, initially when you said the using the array thing, the two thoughts that came to mind were the like denormalization and often when I find I'm going into like a less structured data format that I sometimes come to regret it, although I recently used an array field as well and I find like sometimes it just really matches the thing that we're building. But the thing that comes to mind for me in terms of adding that safety back is a check constraint, which I've never actually used. I've only read about, but I'm intrigued if that might be, so like if you introduce the enum that says these are the possible values, then you can use a check constraint, which my understanding is that's a thing that Postgres, you can say, hey, add this check constraint to this field. And anytime you're inserting or changing data, it will at the Postgres level validate that it's conforming to that check constraint. But they're literally just words that I read on the internet one time. So I don't know if they work. I'd be intrigued though. If you find out that they do, I would love to hear that. 
Yeah, that rings a bell. I feel like you've mentioned that on a previous time where we were talking for the show. So yeah, I'll, I'll look into that and then let you know next week how it goes. Very excited to find out. Uh, so that's really what's new in my week. What's uh, new for you? Picking up from the conversation we had last week, I feel like I went on a, a bit of a rant about my appreciation for Inertia.js as a framework. I haven't actually listened back to what I said in that episode, so I hope it was coherent and painted a good picture. Uh, but it's been very interesting this week the team that I'm working with, we've been having a lot of conversations that are sort of pushing up against the edge of the domain where Inertia.js might make a lot of sense. And so I, I can't actually tease apart whether it's top of mind for me just because it's top of mind or because this is a very real thing that we run into in applications. But basically the idea is we like building Rails apps. They make a lot of sense. They're simple in a lot of ways. But we keep wanting just little bits of extra functionality. Like we wanted to make this fancy calculator that you could drag some sliders and it would auto-calculate a value. And as you're doing that, it's enough fancy stuff that we're like, let's bring in React for that. And then we had another thing that wanted some like fancy expand collapse sort of behavior, but we don't have jQuery on this project because that doesn't come with Rails anymore. So we reached for React for that. And then there was a modal that I wanted to do. So there was a form, but we wanted to put the form into a modal. So the form already existed. Now let's put the form in a modal. And then we're like, oh no, modals, you have to like do stuff. It's got to, you know, open when you click a button and close when you click the other button. And maybe when you click on the background, although I didn't implement that because I'm lazy, let's call it. But each of these sort of things forced us to take code that was otherwise in the Rails view layer. And now it crossed this boundary into the React world. And so we're using the React Rails gem, which allows you, it has a very nice helper that says like render, and then you give it a component name and the serialize, like the hash of the props that you want to pass down to that component. And then it'll take care of the rest. It'll render it in place there. That actually works pretty well, but it's this very fixed boundary. You're crossing into the world of React now. But what we end up finding is that like we have a button component on the Rails side. We had to reproduce it now over on the React side. And the modal only exists on the React side. So if we want to use that and we had a form that we now want to put in a modal, it means rewriting basically the whole thing. But once we go into the React side, we lose a bunch of the Rails stuff. So like form authenticity tokens, I'm now threading that value down into React land and fixing that. And like I lost all the form helpers. So I have to, some of the things that you were just talking about, about how nice like simple form and all those are, those are all lost when I go over on the React side. And so right now we're in a complicated middle ground, like a, a local minimum, I would call it, where we have some of the niceties of React, but we have to give up on some of the Rails stuff or vice versa. And it would be better, I think, to push hard in either direction. So the one option is to go Inertia.js and go all the way into React for all view rendering and then figure out how to reproduce simple form and CSRF tokens and things like that, or go the other way and actually back out some of the React functionality and try and use sprinkles of JavaScript on top of the HTML and ERB. I'm less inclined to that one because as we were having the conversation, one of the other developers used the phrase, I've never seen an app that got less fancy or like less dynamic in the client side over time. The trend is almost always like, let's add a new thing. Let's add a modal. Let's add a carousel or some other enhancement. It's very rarely like, let's actually simplify this and just show some text and some forms and that's it. Like that, that is never the direction of evolution of an application. So yeah, that's sort of the world that we're in. And it's interesting how pointed the conversations were this week around that whole idea. I like how the other developer that you're working with made that point about they've never seen applications become less fancy. 
And it's made me realize how excited I am when that's exactly what happens when someone comes in. It's usually a designer who will come through and sort of clean it up and be like, this is confusing, like too much is happening. We can simplify a lot of this. And I just get so excited at that idea because I know that we can reduce some of the complexity of the code, but then still make it intuitive for the user. So that's that just sort of resonated with me when you said that. So does React have some form helpers similar to like Rails has form helpers? There are other form libraries for React that I've been playing around with. Particularly, there's Formic, which is probably the most popular. Uh, it's very powerful, although I've found it it makes the very hard stuff easier, but it makes everything a little more complicated than I would want it to be. There's another one called React. I think it's React Hook Forms or React Form Hooks or something like that. I can include a link in the show notes, but that one is a much simpler thing, but it's much more about, given that you have a form, how do you get the data when someone clicks submit? Like, how do you get that little JSON blob that you need? And a little bit around validations and things like that. I don't know of anything that does the niceties around, oh, this object that you're trying to render an input for is a collection. I will render a collection of checkboxes here. Uh, I don't know of anything that does that kind of automated form generation. Although following on on some of my uh, griping last few weeks about admins and DSLs and automatic code generation and things, I'm just going to write the code. I'm fine with it. I'll write some inputs. There's a subtle line, I think, around like you ran into an interesting one around a subtle edge case of the HTTP standard. I love when Rails can hide those details from me, but I'm much less interested the longer time goes on in the like, I can generate a bunch of code for you, but like it's boring, repetitive known code, I would probably actually prefer to retain that these days. So yeah, I I like that approach, especially if it's a form that you feel confident where how much is the form doing? Is it very complex? Are we talking a couple fields? The forms so far are very, very simple, but I think they could grow in complexity over time. There's actually some conversation about having a form builder within the app, which terrifies me to my very core. Yeah, we're just going to have a form builder and then we're going to display those forms and capture the answers. And I've run into this on many applications and it's it's one of those things. It's like, oh, yeah, I, th- I think we could build that. It's like a couple sprints. And then it's like, no, the, it's an entire product for many companies to build that. And thankfully, the conversations that we're having are great. And someone actually said that exact sentence of this is entire company's business model is posting a form builder for you. It's a very hard problem to solve. So we know that. And we're thinking about different options. Do we bring in some hosted solution that we can sort of embed within the application? Or do we, what are the different ways that we can approach this that don't require us taking on that pretty monumental engineering challenge? Or one that like starts really easy and then just keeps, you you never get to the end of it. It's never done. Never. Yeah, anytime someone starts talking about having like custom form builders or any allusion to starting to want to recreate email inside of a system, both of those, I'm like, oh, these are entire products. As you mentioned, like they're they're entire products that companies have for a reason because it's not straightforward and it requires a lot of lift. So that has to be a very important distinction of your product and value add as to something you'd want to invest the time in. But if you can outsource it, then even better. I feel like if you're adding like one or two custom fields, that's something that is more manageable. But if you want to give someone the the space to customize an entire form, that's that's a different engineering lift. Nearly all of the applications I've worked on, folks have wanted to add a form builder and some form of like email notification management. <laughs> it's just such a natural that like both of those have been talked about on the current app that I'm working on. So Yeah, it's just the natural state. Applications want to grow until they have their own hosted email situation inside of them. 
I've been having lately what I'm going to call Derek Pryor moments, where I've been in meetings and someone will say something about like, oh, maybe if we have like a form builder, or they'll they'll say something that sort of like triggers an alert for me where I'm like, oh, we, we should talk about this or ask questions about this. And then before I say anything, someone else will also raise like the same concerns or make the same points that I was thinking. And I'm like, cool. I can just sit back. I don't have to say anything. And I think of Derek whenever that happens, just because I remember him saying that at some point that he loves when he's in meetings and doesn't have to say anything just because everybody else is doing such a great job of running the meeting and voicing the same thoughts that he has. So, (laughs) hey, Derek, if you're listening. (laughs) I didn't know which form of a Derek Pryor moment we were going to have there. There's the, uh, the classic, what if we were to just put a phone number on the webpage? But I'm glad that it was even the next level of, you know what, other people are saying that, so I don't even have to. Has, has that story been told here, or is that just a ThoughtBot story? I don't know. We should tell it, yeah. regardless, because even if it has been told, do you want to tell your version of it? Sure. I don't know if it's a correct version, because I have very loose details. I just remember someone else bringing it up at some point. I believe it was Jankowski who had mentioned it, because it was one of his favorite Derek Pryor moments. It had something to do if there, someone needed support, or if they needed to add a particular feature to a website. And Derek had mentioned, like, well, what if instead of like adding some sort of like fancy feature that people can... I don't know, submit a bunch of information. It's like, what if we just gave them my phone number and they can reach out to me directly? I think I think that's not all the details. <laughs> but I remember it was some simplification like that where it's like, what if we just gave them a phone number? I feel like this is one of those things that became almost legend in the office. There was like an original time that I believe Derek said something, but then it became this like ongoing theme and other people would say it, but they would say, what if we just put Derek's phone number on the webpage when Derek was completely uninvolved in the project? So it became just a a meme within the office for we're talking about a lot of work here, but we don't even know if this is useful. If anyone cares, what if instead we just put a phone number up, but then it became Derek's phone number because that's funny. Also, Derek used to joke about it. There was a Seinfeld episode in which Kramer took over the movie phone hotline, but it like wasn't working or something. And so they called and Kramer was like, please dial the number for the movie you want to see. And then it doesn't work. And he's like, uh, why don't you just tell me the movie you want to see? And so that became the extension of the what if it were just Derek Pryor's phone number. Yeah, I sort of recall the episode. Uh, Kramer's number was like mixed up with the movie phone number. So then he was getting the calls because it was like one number off or something. So everybody's calling him expecting him to be movie phone and he just leaned into it. And he's like, okay, the world needs this service. Here I am. Yeah, that's that's a really funny reference. I feel like the phone number thing is a really good example of we now have this little soundbite for a shared understanding around we're talking about a lot of software right now. The thing that you just described, like, let's build a custom form builder. No, no, that's that's too much. Let's take a step back and determine if we actually need it, which was, that's sort of the ThoughtBot ethos overall. But now we had this nice little soundbite, and I think that's why it kind of, like, got stuck in people's memories, and, and it was just funny. So, you know, that's a perfect combination right there. Yeah, my team did something very awesome along those lines this week where, so we're working with an outside consultant in in addition to me, but they're also working with another outside consultant and trying to figure out some of the government regulations around how we need to implement specific features and being in healthcare since we have to follow those guidelines. But it's very hard to understand what those regulations are and how they map over to software and what they really mean and sort of like the nuance that's there. So we've had some back and forth with the person that we're speaking with 
And it was our designer on the team that made the suggestion. They're like, well, I could put together a prototype of the flow that we have in mind. We can send the prototype to this person so they can see truly the flow we're doing and just say, this is what we're doing. If this isn't going to work, let us know and just leave it that way. And I was so excited for that approach because that way we're not making engineering progress just to make progress while we're waiting to hear back from this person. But we really want to validate as much as possible upfront before we build anything and also still find the pieces that we can make progress on. So that way we're not just waiting around for more details, but it was just, it was like the perfect blend of like the phone number, like what's the smallest thing we can do to get validation and to get proof that this is the right thing to do. I love that idea of searching for the product validation. Like, can we build a minimal prototype of that? I know that's a core part of like the design sprint philosophy and part of that workflow. Uh, I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine this week who's found himself software adjacent. So he's not a software developer. He's an innovation consultant, I believe, but he's working with the software organization and helping them do some sales and outreach and think about how they're structuring their offering and, and things like that. But he wanted to talk with me about like how much does the software need to be real? And I was like, oh, it doesn't need to be real at all. You should totally fake it as much as possible early on and go find people. And so we had a little bit of a conversation and I ended up recommending a tool to him, which I don't see used as much as I would want. So I'm wondering if you ever see it used, but have you seen balsamic mockups? Oh, I've heard that, but no, I, I, I'm not really familiar with it. So the vast majority of the time I see folks reaching for Envision, which I think is a really great prototyping tool, and it allows for very high fidelity, clickable prototypes. Like right now, we're using it on the team that I'm on, and I can actually go in as a developer, look at the design and see like measurements and pull out colors and things. But it tends to be, in my experience, really great for high fidelity, but it also sort of encourages high fidelity mockups. So the colors are picked out, the fonts and the layouts and the spacing, and basically everything gets very, very real. And the nicety about Balsamic is... It's a normal like drawing diagram type editor, but you can do like interfaces and wireframes and things like that. But it's got a very hand-drawn style. Like it looks bad. Bad's too strong of a word, but it looks very low fidelity. So it looks like a hand-drawn sketch, essentially. That's that's the words I'm going for. <laughs> it doesn't look bad. It looks like a hand-drawn sketch. I sketch badly, so that's why I said that. But it looks like someone who's just like, yeah, so we'll have like some content here and there's a box with like an X in it to represent some content. And the content doesn't matter. It's just that like the content's over there. And then there's a list and the list is just like a bunch of squiggles above each other. And what it does is it forces you to think about what's the workflow, what's the high level architecture of this thing? How are we structuring the data or like the information architecture, not the software architecture? But I love the low fidelity nature of it. And I love the fact that it sort of forces the conversation out of like, wait, I, I don't actually like that shade of blue. It's like, that's not what we're doing here. Stop looking at the blue. What if there was no blue? And you couldn't even comment on the shade of the blue. So I really like Balsamic, but I don't see it used nearly as much as I would expect. Yeah, I love the the low fidelity nature. The high fidelity certainly has its pros, but I really like everything that you just said, where it's more focused on sort of like the data flow and the actions that you can take and less focused on some of the other stuff that's easy to be distracted by. And um, Jackie recently gave a workshop. I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was related to user interviews and design. And I'll be sure to link to it in the show notes. It's an amazing workshop. She is my workshop hero. Like she, <laughs> she did a live user interview with someone that was part of the workshop and 
and she's just amazing with how well she rolls with everything and and talks with people. And one of the comments that she'd made in there is that if you're going to put data on your mock-up, like use real data and don't use stuff that's distracting. Like don't use celebrity names and don't use lorem ipsum because real people looking at that are going to see it and take a meaning from it or get distracted by it or confused by it. And so her advice was try to keep it as real as possible. And then it sounds like the other great alternative is to use that more like low fidelity balsamic mock-up approach where the data is not even really there. Like maybe it's just like a a squiggle or something to represent that there's something here, but it's okay if we don't know what it is because that's not really what we're trying to figure out in this particular design. So yeah, that sounds cool. I'll have to keep an eye out for that. I'm pretty sure I've heard the name before, but that was like a while ago and, and you're the second person to bring it up to me. I really like the tip that you just shared of Jackie's about using real information. Like I wouldn't think to do it. And I think I've seen plenty of things where it's like, rick and morty or friends characters or something or people from the office and immediately my brain's like oh yeah jim and pam from the office i know them it's like that's not what we're doing here but that in the truest of uh, ways that we can say this that is a pro tip right there yeah and if anyone is interested in hearing more of jackie because she really is fantastic to listen to and just such an entertaining personality um she does co-host one of thoughtbot's other podcast tentative so uh, you can check her out on that and we can include a link uh, in the show notes for that as well But yeah, um, I think with that, maybe we should wrap up. Sounds good. Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter. And I'm at S. Or you can email hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.